Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 382. My favorite movie, which is Spinal Tap. And at the end of the movie, they say, what's your philosophy, Marty? Have a good time all the time. I think that's my philosophy. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. 2015 marks Covercraft's 50th anniversary. They've manufactured premium quality exterior and interior covers here in the United States with a reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit with over 80,000 patterns and growing. You can choose from dozens of fabric options and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicle. Made in the USA, Covercraft is the right choice. I've protected my special rides with their covers for over 40 years, and you should too. Learn more today at Covercraft.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Marty Fiolka. Marty, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Yeah, the five-point harness is on, my Parker Pumper helmet's on, and uh, we're good to go. I'm looking forward to this for sure, Mark. <laughs> All right, awesome. Marty Fiocco is the president of the Rensport Group PR and marketing agency that he founded in 1995. His clients include Nissan, Infiniti, Exxon, and Mitsubishi, just to name a few, and he's the authoritative figure on off-road racing history. He's an industry spokesperson and an author. He was inducted into the Off-Road Motorsport Hall of Fame in 2014. Marty's a seasoned off-road racer and has competed in many desert and short course events, including 15, yes, 15 Baja 1000s. Marty just completed a new documentary film titled Baja Social Club, and he's just published a 532-page book titled The Big M. Marty, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a moment and share just a little bit more about your career, your interests, and of course your passion for automobiles and off-road racing. Yeah, it's been a kind of an interesting career, Mark. You know, as you mentioned, we're finishing my film boss, Social Club. You know, the, my passion for all this goes way back to, uh, you know, honestly, when I was a um, you know child, my dad was an immigrant from Germany, as was my mom and my grandparents. And But my dad was uh, one of the original guys who worked for Robert Bosch here in the United States. And, uh, you know, we were around cars our whole life, and it was always very German-centric, you know, uh, being, you know, lots of Porsches and Mercedes and Volkswagen and stuff like that. Yeah. But that eventually led, you know, my age, that eventually led in the late 1960s and early 70s to friends of my dad's building, you know, fiberglass, Myers-Manx-style dune buggies, and, and then actually going racing. We were living in Northern California at the time, and I uh, got to kind of see my first little off-road race. They used to have a... a place uh, a racetrack right next to what is now Candlestick Park, what was Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. And these were yeah, these were a bunch of homemade, like, you know, tube frame kind of literally like t- water pipe buggies that they built back then, but they're all VW powered. And, you know, I just I just got a kind of a passion for that. And, you know, I've managed to have a career that's taken me from Indianapolis to, to Le Mans and some other places. But, you know, it always seems to come back to professional off-road racing that's been going on. 
you know, now since really since 1967, and it's been a great career and, and, and something that I would be able to actually do a lot of great projects with and meet a lot of great people in the auto industry like yourself and everybody else who I'm looking forward to seeing next week at SEMA. It'll be my 24th year of going, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, you have uh, definitely done what Cars Yeah is all about, and that rap is wrap your passion for automobiles into your vocation. And that's why I love having you on the show. It's great to have you here. But as we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote. It's some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and success. And it's a really great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So Marty, take the wheel. Yeah, you asked me about that. And I, I, there's, a, there's a saying that's posted by my desk that I've had by my desk for years. It's actually from Dr. Portia. I don't know if it's a, it's a successful quote, but it does seem to work. It basically says that committees are, by nature, timid. They are based on the premise of safety in numbers, content to survive inconspicuously rather than take risks and move independently ahead. Without independence, without the freedom for new ideas to be tried, to fail, and to ultimately succeed, the world will not move ahead, but live in fear of its own potential. <laughs> well, I love Dr. Portia, and you know I love Porsches just like you do, but that is an awesome quote. I've read that before, and obviously the way you've taken that quote into your life is you get out in the dirt and you play. So how have you incorporated that into your business and your life and your profession? Well, again, I don't know if it's necessarily led to success, and especially in today's you know, kind of overtly corporate, overly heavy corporate world. But I will say that what's been a, a true factor in my life is the fact that I think any kind of business that seems to work, especially something that's small, that's growing, always has a nucleus of people that really are the people that move the idea forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think now in today's society, and, and the more I'm around corporate world a little bit, sometimes too often now, it seems like everybody's too concerned about being politically correct. They're spending half their time writing emails to cover whatever they were going to cover anyway. And, you know, they become timid in moving forward. And I think that, that if I think of something like Porsche, which has always been probably the most inspirational company in the automotive world to me, the ability to move forward quickly and to try new ideas, uh, you know, something they did so well when I was growing up and they still are doing now is what kind of always drove me to kind of stay independent and just try to create projects that could actually move the needle a little bit and, influence a whole part of the automotive culture that I'm in and, and, you know, do it in a way that can be done quickly and effectively. And I said, I don't know if that's very led to, biz- to business success always, but it certainly has led to me being involved in a lot of great projects, that's for sure. Oh, for sure. And you have been involved in many, many projects. We're going to talk about some of those as we move through here, but I'd love for you to share a story that instigated your passion for cars. You know, growing up in a family that immigrated here, from Germany and being around Bosch, the car culture and all that with your father. Is there a pivotal moment in your life, though, that you really knew you were a car guy? Yeah, you know, there were really two um, two separate instances about the same time. It was probably the early 1970s. And one thing I remember was picking up, uh, I was in, a, in, a, in an old uh, off-road dune buggy shop, you know, Volkswagen shop like it used to be back in the, in the early 70s, and picked up this magazine, saw a picture, a black and white picture of a, it was called a, a, a Funko Wampus Kitty, a, a single seat buggy, literally going shooting this gap, which I found out where it was later on, but it was in this like in this cut of Baja with a bunch of cactus around it, and this guy just hauling butt through this cactus. Like, you know what? That looks like something I want to do. I never, I had no idea where Baja was. Mm-hmm. I had no idea where any of it was, but I was like, kept dreaming about the, this this race, you know, starting this race. Knew my dad and 
and doing it at night. And I'll never forget that. That was kind of first real like needle push. But the second thing, I remember exactly where I was. It was 1971. I was went to Laguna Seca with my dad to the Can-Am race back then. And I got to hang out. Of course, Laguna Seca was a lot different back then because the paddocks were nothing but guys with trailers. Yeah. Hung out with Vasek Polak and those guys and Joe Seifert and Peter Revson. And I remember watching the first lap of the race. And that's before Laguna Seca had the infield cut. Oh, yeah. They basically went through turn one and basically connected the turn. But it's a four now. Yeah. It was just a straight shot. And we're watching the green flag of that. You know, the McLarens and, and the Porsches and all that stuff, and the Ferraris and Lola's. I think Jackie Stewart was there that year. You know, I'll never forget what an impact that start made and the noise and just like, my God, it was the greatest thing ever. And, you know, went back a year later and saw, you know, Donahue and Fulmer and the 917 Porsches and took that a lot to heart and was in, immediately part of that culture. And, and it was interesting because it, it was like two divergent worlds, uh, you know, being part of a, of a sports car, asphalt kind of culture, Can-Am, Le Mans, and then also being really interested in, in desert off-road racing. That was really, really good. Well, you certainly spent some time as a youth around some influential and high-profile people, and to get to uh, hang out with the likes of some of those names you dropped, my gosh, if that doesn't influence a young man, I don't know what does. Marty, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl into the hood, get our hands a little dirty, certainly something you're not afraid of doing, and ask you to share a huge challenge, or even a great failure that you've faced along the way in your career. But the most important part of this has to do with how did you overcome that situation and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I mean, there were there were two, uh, you know, kind of situations I thought of that were really challenging. Both had to relate to Baja. One was, I was a, a roommate of a guy named Todd Clement back in the late 90s. And we founded a company called Wide Open Baja, which eventually became the largest touring company in the world. We have eventually have 30 two or three cars had a ranch in Baja. We could we were able to bring people down and actually tour Mexico in cars or like off-road race cars. And in fact, our first event we did as a pro-am was in 2000, which was at that time was the Baja 2000 and was the longest race score I'd ever tried. I think it was about 1,700 miles long. And we said, well, we're going to lease eight cars and we're going to go ahead and provide all these guys this opportunity for a lifetime. And um, it, you know, I was able to reach back into some of the guys I had done uh, work with in IndyCar racing, guys like, uh, you know, Mike Groff and Robbie Groff and Roberto Guerrero and some of those guys, Ellie Forbes Robinson, sports car racing. And we brought them out and we did their first event. And we had broken bolts that prevented us from getting the cars to the finish line. Well, we did eventually get them there, but it took literally like, I don't know, 50 hours of continuously staying up. Six, I don't know what it was, but oh, that gosh. was one of the hardest, hardest challenges. We did get everybody to the finish line. And that eventually started a whole idea of these Baja Challenge events. And it led ultimately to the biggest success we had, which I think was in 2006. We had 18 cars entered as one entity and all 18 cars finished. Wow. So that was, that was a big thing. And we, we opened the portal to off-road racing for a lot of guys. Danny Sullivan and uh, all kinds of guys came through that system. Um, you know, guys including like Jesse James and Paul Newman, they all came through wide open and did the Baja Challenge, and that was a really nice success story. And probably the hardest thing that I ever did, really, for me, was in 2007 when I decided to lease the convention center at the Long Beach area there in downtown where the Long Beach Grand Prix is mm-hmm. and actually host uh, a 40th anniversary for the Baja Thousand there. And it was a, an event that I kind of pulled off myself uh, with some help from corporate sponsors for sure, but it was way over my head in terms of what was really needed logistics-wise. Mm-hmm. And we eventually had, eventually had, you know, 40 cars there. We had three 
3,000 or 3,500 people that we fed there. We had live music. Then inside, when we went to the stage presentation, I had live music again. And I had it was hosted by by Paul Page and by Dave Despain. And it was just, I was still writing the script for the presentation an hour before we were supposed to open the doors. It was one of of those nerve-wracking deals. And, you know, we ended up dealing with the unions and the unions, of course, unions and all the food. And I ended up going about $50,000 in the hole because of that event. It took several years to, uh, to, finally pay that off personally but um you know it just taught me the lesson of you know and i'm still learning it unfortunately <laughs> is that when you go into something that ambitious and I, i'm always going to try to reach for the stars and usually get pretty close uh-huh. but it may not be the direct route that everybody who's maybe a little more business savvy would take mm-hmm. um you know i'll just say well if shoot if i can work eight hours then then why don't i work 16 and get this done not realizing that you know, that's not really realistic. I was still running a magazine at that time, too. It wasn't a full-time oh, deal. Gosh. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. Yeah, and then we had that. And I don't know. I think I, was, I raced the ball. I was with John Hare that year. Just all kinds of things that went on at the same time. And, uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. It just taught me how. I mean, there was literally a situation where I was across the street looking down on the, the – there was a whole mess in credentials. And I looked down from my hotel room and saw all these people staying in line the the radio kept going off every five seconds trying to find me. I was trying to change. I just looked down like, what did I do this for? Why am I here? Can I just leave? Can I just run away? You know, <laughs> yeah. one of those situations, I never would, would ever would, you know, back down from a challenge or not finishing, but that was the one time that, uh, you know, I, I was immediately over my head and, and uh, you know, it was kind of tough. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I cannot even imagine. But I think our listeners are getting a sense of who I'm talking today, a very high-energy guy that is not afraid to put it all out there. So. Awesome story. Thanks for sharing that. Let's shift gears here and and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share a story. When you had one of those career aha moments, I like to say it's a time when the headlights came on and illuminated your way for a new idea or a new direction that you had. And tell me the steps you took to turn your aha moment into a success. Yeah, I don't know necessarily that if it was really been an aha moment. It's been a a lifetime of moments as opposed to a moment. Certainly, I think that, you know, what's been interesting for me is not only, you know, writing a book, but, you know, producing films, you know, starting and, and, you know, running a magazine, running a PR agency, it's all kind of tied in. I haven't been necessarily, you know, one, one moment. The one, I think, thing in life, though, that somebody taught me once, it was an aha moment. And I was only really, really here recently, you know, off-road racing historically has been something a little bit different than you'd see in indie car racing or sports car racing or whatever. And every driver ever brought down, every guy who was, you know, whether Sebastian Bourdais or whoever it was, Patrick Dempsey, these guys, you know, off-road racing is much more founded on more of an old West kind of handshake deal. Uh-huh. always been kind of been that way and I've been proud of that to be part of that because it's just a different culture you know you can't go down to a thousand mile race like the Baja 1000 and leave people behind you have to make sure your crews are always taken care of you can't leave strangers stranded you know it's, it's a much different culture than the full-blown competitive world of you know in the Indy 500 where it's you know but it's a lot different environment yeah recently somebody shared with me the fact that you know it's all about contracts and the fact that, and, and letters of agreement, let's say, even not even as far as contracts, I certainly don't like paying any attorneys any money to get involved with anything. When, <laughs> yes. when, the, margin, when the margins in this, in this industry, in this space, isn't large to begin with. You know, we're not talking about NASCAR contracts, we're not talking about anything like that. So, um, but, but somebody said, and I, you know what, I actually, when I'm talking to you right now, I believe it was my wife, Susan, who once shared with me, look, 
it's all about integrity, but it goes the other way. If somebody wants to do a letter of agreement with you and they don't want to sign that or a contract, they're hiding something. Mm-hmm. And that was really an aha moment. It's like, you know what? You're right. Because this is all in writing. Yeah. And, you know, so if, if you were going to do what you say you're going to do and I'm saying I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, then this agreement just puts it down on paper and there should be no question about that. It's been interesting in the last three or four years to try to use that in practice and you know, it's, it's actually turned out to be very true. Yeah, you know, the worst thing is when you, you have a, an, an agreement with somebody that you think is one way, and then something happens and they kind of mess with you, and those words of, well, it's just business. <laughs> you go, no, we're two people. This is about people and uh, yeah, agreements that we had and uh, hiding behind those things. Well, that's a great way to put it. It's a great way to go through life, and it certainly has worked for you. How about proudest career moments? I would assume you've had many. You have done so many different things in your life. But is there one proudest moment you could share with us that really stands out for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that it would be silly not, you know, to mention the fact that uh, when I first, and I'd worked on on the film Best of Glory 10 years ago for a long time with Dana Brown and the the group that originally did that. A lot of the storylines in that film were ones that, I either worked on or helped create or created. And I think the first time I was in Santa Barbara with uh, Sal Fish, who's a guy who ran Score International and Data, and we were a crazy story. I was sitting, I was with a guy named Mark Vaughn, who writes for Auto Week. Mm-hmm. And I brought Mark, so it was a crazy trip. We're going to Santa Barbara Film Festival, Best of All Years, playing for the first time on screen. And we rented a limousine, and we went up through Malibu, past Sal's house, had a shot of tequila there, and went up the screening and we walked in with Mark Bond and Mark and I sit down and all of a sudden from the other end sitting down right next to him is Bo Derek and Mark <laughs> looked at me and said Marty you're the best PR guy I've ever met and I was just laughing I, I was not planned it by, at all but but the interesting part of that is obviously the, one of the coolest moments for me is watching that film yeah. uh, on the screen for the first time and realizing you know, our objective at the time was to make our version of Endless Summer or On Any Sunday. And, you know, Dana Brown's obviously the son of Bruce Brown, so that all kind of made sense. Yeah. And when I finally finally watched it, then I watched it again at our L.A. premiere, and I really felt the sense of we really built this thing. And, and, you know, it's it's influenced people around the world. It did for a long time when it came out, and, and, you know, it was indirect influence. Me and the guys were all of a sudden interested in racing class 11 Volkswagens or class one buggies or motorcycles or trophy trucks, whatever. And it really propelled the industry forward and has for a long time. And then I think last year's, you know, induction to the Opera Motorsports Hall of Fame, you know, just before the senior show last year was a incredible honor. Part of me would have been much happier if I'd been like a, you know, a Robbie Gordon or a Walker Evans or a, you know, Rob McCackner, those guys <laughs> got in by bribing and winning championships. That would have been a, a more satisfying thing for me as a racer, but fact of the matter is, is that you know it, it, it didn't always work out that way, and I you know contributed to the sport in, in a lot of other ways that guys like those those guys couldn't. So yeah. it all works out, you know. But you know, once again, once a racer, always a racer. That's how it is, and you know, I'm still I'm still enjoying going down and racing once in a while, and, and still enjoy you know nothing better than driving fast in the dirt. That's for sure. <laughs> well, again, congratulations for that. That's awesome. The film is awesome, and. We're going to talk a little bit about another film, Baja Social Club, in a minute. But first, let's have a little bit of fun. What was your first really special car? And maybe you could share a memory you have with that vehicle. Yeah, I mean, my first car I built when I was 14 and a half. My dad and I built the Baja Bug. And I remember that it being a really cool project for a young guy like me. But really, my most special car I ever had or bought was a 1982 Porsche 911. 
I was 30 years old, had moved from Southern California to uh, to Monterey to be the director of marketing at the Russell Racing School, which was at Laguna Seca at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just after that, one of my sales gals' husband came by and said, well, you have a truck. But I have this red 911 target that maybe you're interested in. And, you know, I just happened to be able to kind of afford it. And, you know, it was an older one that had oil leaks and, you know, but it still was pretty presentable. And I'll never forget, I, I, I made the deal and said, okay, I'm just going to enjoy this. When I'm 30. I live in Monterey. I got a good job. I'm single. You know, it's all good. And I remember the, the Saturday after I got it where I took the target top off and, you know, kind of drove through Carmel Valley and up, up through Carmel Highlands and out to Big Sur. And, you know, man, I felt like a million dollars. And I just <laughs> remember the feeling, though. But I remember the feeling of, of, you know, what Porsche talks about. You know, it is something odd and great about the engine in the back, like, all the race cars pretty much I've ever driven have been that way. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, hearing that engine, it's looking to the beautiful fender flares. And, yeah, granted, it was a guard's red car, which is everybody looks as a, you know, it was an 80s guard's red Porsche, which is a full, you know, male midlife crisis car, which <laughs> I wasn't going through the time. But the fact of the matter is, is that it, it, it felt great. And I, and I just remember how, you know, transformational cars can be yeah. and the experience of driving cars can be. And the only time I ever really topped that, uh, it's really when I'm driving a, a, a race car fast, like in Baja, when you're, you know, that, that, when you're trans, there's always that, talk about an aha moment. There's always that aha moment in a race, especially like in Mexico when it's like maybe sunset or so and you drive down this long dirt valley road and you can see the road heading for 10 miles, heading towards the ocean and at sunset and you just go, my God, I can't believe I get to do this. I can't believe <laughs> yes. it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's there's never a, 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 a shift you didn't like, especially in the bigger cars I drove. You know, it was, it was never a, you know, a dog ring gearbox. I didn't like to shift or, you know, a, a motor that went, you know, gave me 500 or 600 horsepower and, you know, 25 inches of wheel travel wasn't just great. And, you know, but that, the Porsche was actually the car that first kind of gave me that real, like, oh, this is, this is what it's supposed to be like. So yeah. that was the car for sure. Oh, gosh. And you were in the right place to drive it too. So fantastic. Yeah. How about seller's remorse? Is there a vehicle you've owned that you let go that you really wish you had back in your garage? You know, they come to think of, I thought about that question. Actually, there isn't. Um, you know, I've enjoyed all the cars I've had for various reasons, but there were, truthfully, there were just a lot of, of, of Volkswagens when I was younger. And then later on, you know, it, it really turned out, I just need, I needed trucks. I needed something to tow my off-road cars with. So yeah. it was Chevys at first, and now it's been Toyotas for years. And, you know, they're kind of more utility vehicles for me. My race cars and my fun cars, that's what's fun for me. Right. I don't like working on production cars. I don't like it at all. I just let <laughs> yeah. them run. Like, they're utilities. They're wonderful, fine. But, no, I, I really haven't regretted any car. I've, I've owned a lot of them, and I've owned them for a long time. It hasn't really been one lemon in the bunch. I, I, I guess I'm glad to say that. Well, you are a fortunate guy for sure. Let's talk a little bit about projects, things you're doing now that really have you excited and fired up. I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about the book that you just published, this huge 500-plus page book, Big Blue M, and also share a little bit about the Baja Social Club, the film. Yeah, those are the two things, Mark, that are, are really exciting. I was, uh, when I, before I started the Baja, uh, the, the film, um, Dust to Glory, I did write a history book on the Baja Thousand. That was like in 2005. And I hadn't written anything for a long time. I ran Dirt Sports Magazine as the editorial marketing director for eight years. And I didn't think there was another book in me at that point. Once the, I kind of left the magazine world a little bit, it was like, oh, well, I'm tired of writing. But a good friend of mine by the name of Mark McMillan, who's 
you know, the McMillan family is very famous in off-road racing. They've been around since the mid-70s and have done it big and done it well. They, they were founded by a guy named Corky McMillan, who was, this was all in Dust to Glory, too, but it's a three-generation family. And Mark called me one day, and he said, hey, Marty, I'm down here pre-running for the next Mexico race. I said, where are you? And he said, well, I'm at the office. And if you're if you're a Baja guy, you know the office is a bar at Land's End and Cabo San Lucas on the beach. So I knew <laughs> yeah. exactly where he was, and uh, he said, "Hey, I, I want to do a book for, for my family on the history of us. You know, just like yours. Who do you know who can do it?" And at that point, I had, had was working on a couple projects, but nothing really big at that point. And I said, "Well, I'll do it because I knew the McMillans had a great story." And it ended up where you know we started off with a a single-story home. They were home in home construction, and I built a three-bedroom house, a three-story house with a penthouse. I mean, it went from, you know, 200 pages to 536. The thing that's interesting about that project is you have to remember that they're almost like a Penske of this world where they've, you know, any time you can say, hey, I've done 305 desert races, which yeah. they have, yeah. and in multiple cars, not one, mostly two or three, and not limited classes, mostly unlimited classes, and like Mark McMillan's won the Baja Thousand five times overall, and even you know Andy McMillan lately won last year. And McMillan's keep going, and you know the, the amount of money and effort they put into it is just a massive thing. So trying to get that all into a book was a big project. You know they were the, the first guys to really put Porsche 911 motors in those cars in the late 80s. They worked a lot with a factory, so the story was great. And uh, you know if somebody asked me if I'm proud of the book, you know I, I, for me I'm proud of the fact that it's finished. Because there were so many nights where I just, you know, when I got to the office, Mark had, had kept everything, and I mean everything, from every race. So his secretary had gone through and put five, literally 305 manila envelopes together full of information for every race. Wow. The pit notes, the, the, you know, the, the magazines at the time, the event programs, everything, maps. And so, you know, to go through that and, and kind of condense it down to some kind of logical book order oh my gosh. Uh, was sometimes overwhelming. I mean, it really was. There were nights where I was just like, I just didn't want to wake up the next morning and deal with this again. But, you know, we got through it. It took longer than we thought. You know, I thought it'd take a year. Originally, it took, you know, two and a half almost. But the book is now done and out, and we've managed to figure out a great way to, to, to print them and get them done so that they're somewhat affordable and you know, they've been, been for sale now for a couple of weeks, and they're doing pretty well. So awesome. the McMillans are happy, you know, and, and, and for off-roaders like ourselves, there aren't a lot of books. This is what it kind of can tell me originally, Mark, to do like the first book and the first tribute event at the Peterson Museum in 2000, just before the Baja 2000. But, mm -hmm. you know, let, let's take a couple of examples, you know, Lamar, Porsche, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, NHRA. They've done such a great job of leveraging their history into something that's in that's cool but to me that's all great but off-road racing just as cool or cooler mm -hmm. you know there's more innovation there's less rules there's you know everybody from Parnelli Jones to Robbie Gordon to all these guys who made a living doing this thing and, and a lot of them are privateers and like I said so much innovation in what was built and, and what what's out there now it was just as interesting and, and in the early on the days of you know Hot Rod Magazine those guys went down with all kinds of sedans and I mean everything you know Bruce Brown going down in 68 and filming you know the the second Mexican 1000 for Wide World of Sports with you know Jim McKay yeah. and all that history was so great but it was never ever nobody ever did anything with it yeah. and uh, I, I took it kind of as a personal mission to to take that treasure trove of history and innovation and fun and adventure and kind of get it out to the public a little bit and if anything I, I think my career has helped do that and make 
the sport proud of itself. I mean, I think that for a long time, all off-road racers felt they were like sub, you know, they were like a subculture, a little bit redneck, which in fact is not the case at all if you really, if you really analyze. It started that way, but it hasn't stayed that way. And I think that you tie in the celebrity factors of guys like James Garner and Steve McQueen racing those days, you know, and, and all kinds of innovators like Bill Strope and Bill Kiki and those guys. I mean, it's pretty pretty damn cool and I, I just wanted to make sure that it was out there for the world to understand that because again you can there's probably what let's say at least 200 books on Porsche probably more than that oh gosh on Porsche, I think Porsche I, racing, I think Porsche I runner. have more than 200 books on Porsche <laughs> yeah I think my friend Randy Lefton probably wrote about 50 of those yeah but but the deal is it's just only two or three on, on off-road racing at all so so that's you know the big blue M helps that I it's rekindled my passion for books. I think I may have one or two left in me before I'm, before I'm done. I, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, writing becomes one of those things where as you get older, it becomes a little more difficult because you're kind of tired of hearing yourself think and tired of reading about yourself. I'm not to a point, I don't know if it's like this with, with you, but I have a very difficult time now even proofreading my own work. I have to have proofreaders come in and, and proof it because I literally can't do it anymore. I mentally can't do it anymore. It's one of those things that just, I think once you've written as much as I have, it's like, oh, well, I don't even read this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I understand. And then tell us a little bit about Baja Social Club. Yeah, Baja Social Club was basically, it came out of a, a need I had once I watched, I watched Just the Glory about four or five years ago, and there was a race that I kind of helped get off the ground called the Nora Mexican 1000, which was a, an antidote to those of us who can't race the real Baja 1000 anymore. It was more vintage-based. It was four days with overnight stops in Baja. It finished in Cabo San Lucas. It was once a year. We could run pump gas. We didn't need chase crews. And so this vintage vibe came back. And I remember watching Dust Floor and go, you know, we haven't told the story of the guys that originally came down here and did this race and opened up this whole peninsula. And it's a whole, you know, if you look at it from a filmmaker's perspective a little bit, a storyteller's perspective, it's a whole counterculture thing of, you know, the late 1960s. Well, some guys were out, you know, with VW vans up in, you know, the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, right? And some were out here, you know, NHRA or running around the, on, the, on the dry lake bed. But some were down in Baja opening up that whole peninsula, too. And, and it's really about the earliest days of those. And the guys, we brought some guys back down to Baja the first winter, Vic Wilson, you know, Malcolm Smith, Walker Evans, those guys, you know, Parnelli Jones. They're the guys who were really kind of the heroes down there. And I wanted to kind of tell their story kind of with the backdrop of the Nora Mexican 1000, you know, we, we're going to use that as a backdrop and kind of tell the story. And thankfully, for some help through people like Oakley and, and uh, General Tire and Amsoil, they were able to get enough funding together to kind of get the project off the ground. But, you know, I mentioned earlier that the 1968 race that Bruce Brown filmed. I looked at my book, and there was a picture of Jim McKay inter- interviewing Bruce Myers, the guy who had the Myers-Manx. Uh-huh. Myers-Manx won the very first Mexican 1000, and Bruce set the first record. And there was a picture in my book. I thought, my God, that wasn't in the film that Bruce produced for Wide World of Sports. So I went back to his home in Santa Barbara, and I showed him this trailer. And Bruce is a very quiet guy, a little, little, little older, little, you know, little, little stubborn in a way. But he looked at it, he goes, and I said, is there more film? He said, yeah, there is. He said, let me see the trailer again. He's sitting there smoking a cigarette like those guys used to do. <laughs> and he said, okay. So I went back into, he said, well, I'll show you where, where I have. He goes back to this one long closet door in his house. He opens up the closet door, and I swear, Mark, there are stacks and stacks of endless summer films. Wow. And on any Sunday film, the film canisters with the original film in it. Wow. He said, yeah, it's down. It's one down there somewhere. So I dug out like six big Hollywood steel-style canisters of film yeah. that had 54 reels of, of film in there, and it was the first-generation 16-millimeter 
film that they shot in 1968. And so I basically purchased all of the outtake film. I eventually found all this, a lot of the audio, because remember, those days it was separate between the audio and, and obviously the film. Right. And the first interview I was able to put together, which has never been seen before, is the one that Jim McKay did with Bruce Myers. Nice. So we put all that together for the first time, and it's just such a special project when you can do those kind of things. So um, I'm in the middle of finishing that film. I'm looking for a little more historical footage, but we're going to finish it, and it's going to be a, a different kind of story. You know, I love the story of those older guys. And, you know, in a sense, too, at the time we're in now, you know, that was 1960, let's say 67 through 1970. And, you know, those guys all kind of facing their own mortality at this point. They want to make sure right. their legacies are preserved. And I want to make sure their legacies are preserved. And when you deal with guys, I mean, look, when you deal with guys like Malcolm Smith, who's one of the sweetest men on the planet and so humble, but so talented. And, you know, he knows he, he's dealing with some rough parts in terms of having Parkinson's and stuff. You know, I want to make sure I get their story down before... Right. I can't get it down the way I want to anymore. And I think yeah. that that's, that's been the, the greatest gift of all for somebody like me is to be able to do that. So hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll ha get enough here and get it finished up in the first part of next year and uh, get it out into the world. Awesome. Can't wait for that. That's great. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Marty. If you were a car, I kind of think I know how you're going to answer this, but you might you might trip me up a little bit. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? Yeah, you know, I thought I love this question, by the way. You know, I'd like to think in my head, I'm like a Golf Porsche 917. That's what I'd like to think, right? <laughs> Just yeah. beautiful and classic and powerful and all dominating. But really, if I thought about it, I'm more like a, like a 1967 VW 23-window bus. Okay. I'm like, I'm the guy that, that has a, seems to make everybody have a great relationship has kind of a full California attitude. You know me. Yep. You know, I love California. I love Southern California. I love the beach and surfing. And, you know, those those buses embody all that and make people smile. And uh, so, you know, fact of the matter is I'm one of, probably one of more of those, I, I have to say. I think that's a great way to answer that question. Knowing you, I've known you for a long time. Uh, I think that's a perfect choice. That's Marty for sure. Very cool. Well, Marty, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, Let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsor. Metrovac has been manufacturing and providing quality automotive vacuums and blowers since 1939. I've used their portable vacuum and blowers for over 15 years in my garage, on my cars, motorcycles, around my home, and you should too. Their Air Force Master Blaster Revolution is my go-to tool every time I wash and detail my vehicles. Powered by two twin-fan 4.0 peak horsepower motors, the Master Blaster delivers up to 58,000 feet per minute of clean, warm, dry, filtered air. Dry your car without a towel and avoid those nagging micro-scratches. Perfect for the wheels, engines, motorcycles, and all those frustrating water traps in trim, door jams, and seals. Check out all of Metrovac's quality products, deliberately made better in the USA. Metrovac is the right choice. Learn more today at Metrovac.com. Use discount code CARSYA20 and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's right, 20% off. Details at CARSYA.com slash sponsors. Okay, Marty, we're back and we're entering the last lap. You know what that means. This is where I fire off a series of questions and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Yep, absolutely. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I ever got was very simple. You buy the best and you cry once. <laughs> you know, I live that in every restoration, every race car part I ever bought. That's how I live my life. 
You know, I have another guest that's been on the show. Of course, you know who he is, Bruce Meyer, you know, the quintessential car guy up there in uh, Beverly Hills area. And he said the same thing. Buy a car once, cry only once, and move forward. So <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, and that, go- that goes for parts, too, I have to say. Yes. Racing, for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success over the years? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to my success is, you know, always give without expecting back. And then always have patience. You know, the relationships that you foster, that you build and foster, may not pay off in a year or two or three. It may be five, six, seven, ten. You never know if you're in the same industry. You just never know. So I never give up on people or projects or ideas that seem to make sense. It may not be the right time. You know when the time is right. You feel you get instant traction and instant momentum, and things move forward very quickly. If it's not the right time, they don't. I've kind of learned the patience thing quite a bit, and that's really helped me quite a bit. Great advice. Is there a resource? I know there's a lot of them out there, but is there one in particular you think the Cars Yeah listeners would really enjoy? You know, I think the best resource for what I do and, and give a glimpse in our world is something called the Race Desert. It's an online uh, forum and a website that has a lot of information on, on races. You know, there's a lot of cl- classified stuff. There's also, you know, shop breakdowns of all the vehicles will be raced. So, yeah, yeah, it's race-desertwithaz.com. I think that's really the best one that I can think of for sure. Awesome. Great. Now, how about a book? I know we're going to talk about it. We talked about your book, The Big Blue M, and that's going to be listed. But is there another book that you think our listeners would really enjoy reading? Yeah, I, um, I do. I think my friend Malcolm Smith speaking, which just came out with his book. And Malcolm's autobiography is great because it, it touches so many things about how he built his business. He's a very successful businessman. How he, you know, he, he had his early life in motorcycles and how he became a real car, four-wheel guy. He raced that car, the, the Camel Trophy. Of course, he's won the Baja 1000 a lot. So Malcolm's new book, which is just called Malcolm Smith, is, is a great read. I really enjoyed reading it uh, about a week ago or so. Awesome. Great. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these great resources Marty's been so kind to share at carsyacom slash Marty Fielka. And his last name is spelled F-I-O-L-K. A, a grand German name for sure. And also there's another great place on the Cars Yeah website called Guest Recommended Books, where Marty's book and all the books that the past guests have recommended are listed with quick, easy links where you can get your hands on all of these books. All right, Marty, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, but don't worry about the price because today I'm going to write that check, what would that one vehicle be and why? You better step up for $25 million, Mark. That's all I got to say. Oh, my. That's what it takes to get the number 20 uh, Golf 917 that Jerry Seinfeld has. Oh. Movie car. Oh. That's the one. You know, you ask, and that's if I had, if money were no object, just, I wouldn't even almost want to, like, drive it as much as look into my garage and see it, mm-hmm. and then maybe have my mechanic boot rig out there, like, starting it for me so I could hear it. <laughs> yeah. Because those cars, to me, are magical, special amazing that after all these years they still invoke so much passion you and i both saw that at the rent sport reunion yes. you know my god that that porsche vibe is alive and well and they did a great job there i felt so special being there it was probably the best automotive day i think maybe i've ever had with that saturday at the rent sport reunion. it was great yes we had an awesome time it was so fun to run into you you introduced me to so many great people and Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this is going to be a tough one for me to to bring through. You know, I'd love to have Jerry Seinfeld on cars. Yeah, as a guest. Someday I'll nab him, but uh, I'll have to give him a call and say, I got a buddy who really wants your car, so you're going to have to let it go. But 
I think I'm going to have to write one of those really big, you know, end of the race winning checks that takes three trophy girls to hold up with a lot of zeros. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Exactly. Well, Marty, you have taken me on an awesome ride through the desert. I knew you would. Really enjoyed talking with you today. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey in the dirt and the desert with me. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off down the racetrack in that Gulf Porsche 917? Yeah, I think it comes from my favorite movie, which is Spinal Tap. And at the end of the movie, they say, what's your philosophy, Marty? They say, have a good time all the time. I think that's my philosophy. (laughs) Parting right now, Mark. That's it. It's a great philosophy. Absolutely. And, you know, I watched the trailer to uh, the movie that we were talking about earlier, and there's an elderly gentleman there talking about, as you get older, you start to realize you really need to have fun doing what you're doing while you're doing it. So... Yeah, I, I think the exact quote, Mark, is if we knew we were making history, we would have paid more attention. And I think that, <laughs> that, that's been made, that's the philosophy of the whole film, actually, right there, and that's, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, fantastic. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything we've talked about here today at com. Just put Marty in the search bar, and his show notes page will pop right up. Marty, thanks again for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your wild and crazy experiences with me and the listeners. Until we talk again... I'll see you down the road. Mark, thanks. I had such a great time, and we'll see you uh, down the road as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!